I would like to start today by saying that the modern game of baseball has a very murky origin. The first reference to a baseball is in a 1744 English children's book, which also has a woodcut print showing something similar to the modern setup, except with a triangle instead of a diamond. By 1829, another book containing rules for various ball and bat games was published in Boston. The game that we now know and love most likely evolved from an earlier English game called Rounders, though for decades Americans, zealous about their national pastime, accepted as gospel the legend that Abner Doubleday invented the sport out of whole cloth in 1839 in Coopersville, New York. By the mid-1840s, a code of rules for the game was completed by a member of the New York Knickerbocker Club. This rule set, by the way, put an end to the practice of tagging a runner out by hitting them with the ball. In the decade preceding the Civil War, baseball began to truly flourish and was brought west by soldiers and civilians alike who were moving toward California for the promise of a better life. In fact, I've read that Tombstone even had a team organized around 1880. As means of a digression, if you want an as authentic experience as you can get, there exists in southeastern Arizona the Arizona Territories Vintage Baseball League, which plays by the rules set in place in 1860. Um, these rules include such deviations from the modern sport as if a ball is caught on the first bounce or off of a foul tip, it's an out. You can't overrun first base. There is no stealing of bases. And only the team captain is allowed to address the umpire, who must be addressed as sir. Should anyone argue with the umpire, use foul language, or engage in any ungentlemanly conduct, they will be fined 25 cents. Okay, I believe it's around this point that you are probably thinking, as always, this is pretty cool historical nonsense, but... What's going on here? I mean, I know we just got back from a break, but weren't you just talking about Geronimo 90 seconds ago? Well, no, you didn't miss an episode, and yes, we were dealing with Geronimo. But this is where baseball comes in, I swear, even though I did kind of try to shoehorn the Arizona Territorial Vintage Baseball League in right here. See, despite the possibility of an outbreak happening all around him, Lieutenant Britton Davis, the man put in charge by General Crook to oversee the Chiricahua, was at Fort Apache on the afternoon of May 17, 1885. What was he doing there? Well, you guessed it. He was in the middle of umpiring a game of baseball. When runners brought to him the news that the Apache, led by Geronimo and Mongus, were on the verge of breaking out. So Davis and his soldiers dropped their bats, balls, and mitts and leapt into action. Unfortunately, by then, it was too late. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 103, All Sorts of Trouble. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you had a wonderful 4th of July if you live in the States and that you got more rest than I did. But now that the holiday and my holiday plans have passed, 
we can turn our attention back to Geronimo's third and final outbreak. When we last left off, the Chiricahua fondness for Tiswin and wife-beating had led to a tense confrontation with Davis about the policies the army was trying to force on them, namely giving up Tiswin and wife-beating. Davis had wired his new superior, Captain Francis Pierce, about what to do, but the inexperienced captain had failed to let General Crook know about the rising tension. Meanwhile, Geronimo sobered up a bit and suddenly realized that maybe having tense standoffs with the army was a bad idea. So he and Mongus had lied to their fellow leaders, Nietzsche and Chihuahua, saying that they had had Davis killed and that they all needed to leave, like, right now. So breakout they did, or at least around 144 of them. Leaders such as Loco, Bonito, and Chato decided that they were done with this and refused to go, along with some 400 of their followers. So for context, we are dealing with only a fraction of the Chiricahua population as a whole. But still, nearly 150 Apache on the loose is the kind of thing that would give Crook and the Army PR nightmares, seeing as nearly every single American across Arizona and New Mexico would as soon shoot an Indian as look at them. Sometime after 7 p.m. on May 17th, two companies of cavalry left Fort Apache led by Captain Alan Smith with simple orders from Davis. Find Geronimo and arrest him and anybody with him. However, these soldiers, and Davis himself, would soon find that they were working off of old information. They had been told that a breakout was imminent, not that it had actually happened. In fact, it had happened two hours before they started writing. Nor, for that matter, did they know just how many Apache were thinking of leaving. Their initial assumption was just Geronimo, Mangus, and some discontented followers. Meanwhile, Davis was rounding up his Apache scouts, though he was very doubtful of their loyalty. There were only three, including Chato, that he trusted fully, and he suspected that something along the lines of half of his 30 scouts would desert if given the chance. Turns out, this shows us more about his lack of faith in his scouts, as in total, only four would make a break for it, including the two men sent by Geronimo and Mongus to actually kill him and Chato. Speaking of that plot... When these two saw how well-protected Davis was, they decided that the whole assassination thing just wasn't going to happen, and they instead ran to join their fleeing people. Davis would only learn later that he had been the target of a plot that had fizzled. Alright, so right now, the Apache are giving it their all to escape. The telegraph lines to Fort Apache had been cut to slow down communication, and the group was purposely taking the most difficult route, through canyons and creeks and over ridges and mesas just to make it harder to follow. At one point, Chato and his scouts were excited to see that they were within six miles of the fleeing Chiricahua, but they were pulled up short by Captain Smith, who was a novice Apache fighter and wanted to rest his men. So the Apache used that opportunity to get well ahead of their pursuers, while on a course for the Mogollon Mountains in New Mexico. And here we see the flexibility of the Chiricahua, who could go over some of the harshest country Arizona had to offer, of time splitting up and reforming with an ease that put their American pursuers to shame. 
Unfortunately, we also see Geronimo's pragmatism too, as the Apache would attack and kill any Americans they ran into during the first couple days of their escape, making sure to loot them for weapons, ammunition, and any stock they might have had. Once in the Mogollon Mountains, they broke up into two rough parties, one for Chihuahua, Naiche, and their followers, and the other for Geronimo, Mungus, and their followers. This is where they were when the scouts that had fled from Davis finally cut up with their people. But when they showed up, they just so happened to mention Davis and Chato in the present tense. Chihuahua's ears perked up and he must have said the equivalent of, what now? The whole reason he and Nietzsche had agreed to this daring escape is because they thought Davis and Chato were already dead and retribution was coming any minute now. Now, to be fair to Geronimo, it's possible that he thought the plan was going to happen and he just spoke too soon. On the other hand, it's just as likely that he needed the additional help, so he deceived his fellow leaders in order to enlist their aid. Either way, there's no denying the result. Chihuahua was furious. After the full realization of what had happened hit him, he grabbed his brother and he grabbed his rifle and he started riding full bore toward Geronimo's camp. Chihuahua had vowed to kill Geronimo, and this was not an idle threat. He had killed men before, and he wouldn't hesitate to do so again. It's also possible that Chihuahua thought Geronimo's scalp would make the perfect I'm sorry gift to Crook, who would then let him back onto the reservation without punishment. Fortunately for Geronimo, but Ultimately, unfortunately for the course of Chiricahua history, Geronimo was tipped off about Chihuahua's murderous rampage by one of his men. Knowing that he couldn't reason, lie, or fight his way out of this one, he did the most prudent thing. He packed up his group, and he left. Nietzsche, who had been traveling with Chihuahua, but was at that moment in the camp of Geronimo, was forced to go with him. Now, I haven't really seen anything about his reaction to Geronimo's deception, though Geronimo biographer Robert M. Utley says that he did send a message to his wife to take their child and head back to the reservation. Both Utley and historian Edwin R. Sweeney makes the point that right here, the fragile unity of the Chiricahua Apache was broken forever. As I've impressed upon you again and again, these are not one people, but rather bands that recognize some kinship with each other. Geronimo and Mongus had their followers, but they were only a fraction of the Chiricahua as a whole. And now, even the fleeing Chiricahua had decided to split up. As Sweeney notes, it would soon become apparent that there was no one dominant leader in charge of this flight. As for Chihuahua, after seething for some unknown time, he and his group headed north along the Mogollon Mountains, while Geronimo and his group pointed themselves southward toward Mexico. And of course, the army was still playing catch-up. Crook received word on May 17th that something was potentially up, but wasn't that concerned because he had a man on the ground, Davis. He would have been more ready had Captain Pierce actually sent the telegram he received from Davis on May 15th. So it wasn't until May 18th, the day following the breakout, that word finally reached him in Prescott of what exactly had happened. Instantly he jumped into action, 
ordering other units in the territory to deploy to logical routes the Chiricahua might take to keep an eye out for the renegades, while also reaching out to his counterpart in New Mexico, the War Department in Washington, local newspapers, and the governors of Sonora and Chihuahua. Details were sparse, but he made the best decisions he could based on the information he had. Davis was ordered to hunt the escaped Chiricahua, but was to use the scouts to extend all the branches to anyone who wanted to come back in from the cold. Crook was still of the mind that only Apache could be used to catch Apache, so his orders were to enlist the aid of those who hadn't jumped the reservation to hunt down those that did. Dangling the carrot of their loved ones that were still captive in Mexico, his orders were for his men to say that the few that had been released up to this point were just the tip of the iceberg, but that the release of the rest would be seriously jeopardized by this latest outbreak. And this line worked especially well with Chato, whose wife and two children were still down in Mexico, and who believed Crook was the only one that could retrieve them. So, in his mind, Geronimo and his antics were keeping him from the reunion that he so desperately wanted. And I think we've all seen enough action movies to know that family members taken hostage is a powerful motivator. Plus, Chato had a power of his own too, just like Geronimo. He was said to have the ability to see the future in dreams and that muscular tremors he experienced were actually indicators of coming danger. So during this time, Chato really becomes a central leading figure for the Chiricahua who hadn't abandoned the reservation. After Crook's orders to enlist scouts to recapture the rest came down, he helped organize the response, including holding a war dance on May 21st, just four short days after the escape. Most of the anger of this group was directed at Geronimo, who was the very symbol of the renegades and who everyone now blamed for making them fight their own people. One scout would later say, quote, In this way, he, that is Geronimo, caused Apache to fight Apache and all sorts of trouble to break out among our people. End quote. And so the story of the outbreak has a hero and a villain. Now the only remaining question was when they would clash. But it wouldn't be in Arizona, and it definitely wouldn't be in New Mexico. Geronimo, Mangas, Nietzsche, and the positively aged Nana were not giving up their location as they moved about. The same could not be said of Captain Smith out of Fort Apache and his men. On May 22nd, so four and a half days after Geronimo's breakout, Smith led the men with him into a rugged spot known as Devil's Canyon while following the trail of the Apache. Despite the fact that the White Mountain Scouts, unfamiliar with this particular spot, were nervous and that it was a canyon no more than 50 yards wide with two hills overlooking it, Captain Smith decided it was a great place to take a little break. At midday, he ordered his men to stop so that he could take his lunch, and, I kid you not, take a bath. This irked his second-in-command, one Lieutenant Parker, who was sure it was just inviting attack. But Smith's greatest mistake was not posting any pickets on the canyon walls itself. Because, and I'm sure none of you saw this coming, Geronimo, Mongus, Nietzsche, and their men were waiting on top of that canyon. 
Despite being outnumbered 6-1, to one, the Apache spread out and got ready. When Smith ordered some of his White Mountain Scouts to scale a ridge after lunch, Geronimo launched his attack, which caught nearly everyone unawares. Lieutenant Parker was able to salvage the situation when he led some men on a daring counterattack up the sides of the canyon. Eventually, he was joined by Captain Charles Gatewood and Smith, who arrived in his boots and his drawers only. The Silver City Enterprise newspaper seized on that latter fact and called this skirmish the Battle of the Shirt Tail. Still, Geronimo and his company managed to get away, deciding to head toward where Victorio used to roam just over five years previous. At this point, Nightshade left the group to join Chihuahua and his followers. Once again, I would love to have known his reaction to Geronimo's not-so-white lie. For those that remained with Geronimo, they found that things had changed dramatically since Victorio had left the area for his ultimate fate in Mexico. Where he used to roam and raid was now dotted with ranches, farms, and mines. In other words, white eyes everywhere. The group now had a tough choice to make. Their options were to go to the area that used to be Ojo Caliente, traditional Cheheni land that had been a reservation for a short time, or to head east, crossing the Rio Grande into Mescalero territory, or take the standard Geronimo solution. Flee south into Mexico. Out of their limited options, Mexico sounded like the best choice, so the Apache pointed themselves south again. Except, like I said, New Mexico was now crawling with Americans, so they were forced to commit the cardinal sin of playing Dungeons and Dragons. They split the party. But since this place isn't crawling with goblins and gelatinous cubes, and the Apache were used to moving in small mobile groups, it wasn't that bad. But still, they had to split their numbers in order to pass as clandestinely as possible. I will say here, though, that of course Geronimo still found a few Americans that he could raid and kill on his way down. Mongus also managed to do an end run around a couple of army units that had been sent out against him by looking like he was picking a hill to die on, but when the soldiers started ascending, Mongus and his men were able to double back the way they came and disappear. On May 29th, Geronimo, Mongus, and everybody with them slipped down into Mexico near Palomas Lake. And it turned out to be a good thing that they hadn't gone with option number two and head toward Mescalero country. A couple of women, including one of Geronimo's wives, had been sent that direction, but they stumbled upon a reservation at peace. After throwing their lot in with Victorio at the beginning of the decade, the Mescalero had found that only led to tight government control and death, so they had more or less settled down. Even the brewing of Tisman was kept in check by a 30-man Mescalero police force. So when the Mescaleros had heard about Geronimo's rebellion, they had all pledged to fight him if he tried to disrupt the peace of their reservation. Then these two women showed up, bearing a message that Geronimo was willing to meet with any disaffected members of the band, and they were quickly seized and turned over to the authorities. Looking elsewhere, it turns out that it wasn't only Geronimo who was looking at Mexico as a good option. Chihuahua also decided that heading south was the best bet for him and his people. 
With his failure to find and kill Geronimo, it's likely that he didn't think Crook or the other white authorities would let him back onto the reservation without some sort of severe punishment. The irony here is that they were further scared by the approach of Lieutenant Davis and his troops, who were really only there to offer an olive branch. They could have returned to San Carlos right then and there with little to no punishment, but a lifetime of dealing with the White Eyes had left Chihuahua mistrustful and afraid. So he ran. But with Geronimo and Mangus hogging the army's spotlight, Chihuahua and the men with him felt a little better about their chances. However, they needed horses to get where they needed to go, and those were in a very short supply. So instead of slipping quietly away, more raiding and pillaging up and down New Mexico occurred, which caused the press to have a field day openly saying that Crook and his policies had failed and other means of controlling these savages were needed, not realizing that less than 3% of all the Amerindians at San Carlos had actually broken out. Chihuahua, Nietzsche, and their people continued to move around, heading in a mostly southward direction, plagued by white civilians and soldiers alike. At one point, Chato and his men got close enough to exchange gunfire with Chihuahua, but the ultimate result was a well-organized retreat by Chihuahua. Chato had with him two scouts from Nietzsche's band and sent them to perhaps negotiate. And this might have actually worked, but Nietzsche was unfortunately off on a raid at the time, so the envoys didn't reach the one person they could have perhaps persuaded. The raiding and evasion continued, with the army, not to mention an armed militia out of Duncan, always just a step behind. On June 8th, so we are somewhere at three weeks after the breakout and around ten days since Geronimo had actually escaped into Mexico, Chihuahua and Nietzsche split up again, with an agreement to meet in the Sierra Madre Mountains. Chihuahua, knowing that the army was around here somewhere, went scouting and he found it in a place known as Guadalupe Canyon. Well, he didn't find the army so much as he found the army's baggage train. The commander of the 4th Cavalry had gone off to hunt Apache, and so had left three army tents and wagons loaded with 40 days worth of rations and thousands of rounds of ammunition with one sergeant and seven soldiers who were on sick duty. Sensing an opportunity, Chihuahua took 12 men with him. Yep, there were only 12 men, the rest being women and children, and he got into position. And if the table hadn't been spread enough for them, the American sentry on duty decided to just leave his post 15 minutes before he was to be relieved, leaving no one on lookout. At noon on June 8, 1885, Chihuahua's men opened fire, killing one man immediately. What followed was an hour-long firefight that eventually saw the wagon with all the ammunition on it catch fire and, you probably saw this coming, explode. By the end, Chihuahua and his men had five new cavalry mounts and two mules to take with them into Mexico. Years later, he would proudly tell an American officer that he had led this raid and his only regret was that five out of the eight soldiers had managed to escape. And with that, he too slipped across the border. With Chihuahua having now made it to Mexico, the only leading rebel left in Arizona was Nietzsche. 
He and his followers had made a temporary camp at a place called Dixie Canyon in the Mule Mountains, which is to the northeast of Bisbee. On the afternoon of June 9th, so just a day after Chihuahua's raid on the army baggage train, two Americans followed their trail and were able to spot his encampment with their binoculars. Unfortunately, this allowed the Chiricahua to spot them, and as you can imagine, they instantly sent out warriors to silence these two Americans for good. The Americans leapt onto their horses and set off at once, firing just a few shots as they left, but the Apache were able to get some better shots off, shooting one man and his horse. After he fell, pinned by his own dead mount, the Apache moved in to finish him off. The people of Tombstone were horrified by this murder and instantly sent out a militia of their own to track down the Apache and dish out some good old-fashioned western vengeance. But they would never get the chance because Nietzsche had already taken his people and fled the remaining distance into the relative safety of Mexico. Alright, so for everyone trying to keep track at home, by this point, early June 1885, Everyone that had broken out of the reservation was now out of the United States entirely. If you are General Crook and you are watching this, then you just saw that the army failed to capture 150 people over the course of three weeks despite having a pretty good idea where they were going. Okay, that is an oversimplification. Crook had made all the right moves. He had told the cavalry in Arizona and New Mexico to block the usual Apache escape routes. A full 20 troops of cavalry and more than 100 scouts had been tasked with hunting them down. He had moved his command from far off Prescott down to Fort Bayard, and later Deming, New Mexico, to be closer to the action. Unfortunately, the fact was a variety of factors were working against the army. There were some officers who were more interested in garrison life than field duty, like, say, a certain captain who decided to take a lunch and a bath at the bottom of a canyon while out hunting the enemy. Also, the army stopped to rest their horses, while the Apache would just ride until their mounts gave out and then would steal fresh ones from nearby ranches. Then there was the Apache's home court advantage. They knew the terrain and could do things like slip away in the middle of the night and be perfectly fine crossing very rugged country without the aid of daylight. In 25 days, the army had come into close contact with the Apache four times. Two of those times were the ambushes we talked about, and in the other two instances, the Apache were able to feint one way and then go another. Crook seems to not have been too perturbed by the army's poor showing. He'd come to the conclusion years ago that only Apache could really hunt Apache. So on June 9th, the same day that Nietzsche's band was spotted in the Mule Mountains, Crook asked permission to recruit 200 more scouts. By this point, the general knew he would have to wage another campaign down in Mexico, and this time he wanted to send his scouts en masse to really help bring the renegade Chiricahua in. I want to also touch on the fact that the general public was starting to lose their faith in Crook at this point. While a decade earlier, he was held as the indispensable man of the Apache Wars, now it seemed that his crusade to bring them in with carrots instead of sticks had failed spectacularly. The Silver City Enterprise newspaper in New Mexico went so far as to print that the general should be held criminally responsible for every citizen that had been killed by the Chiricahua. 
most of the populace didn't understand the context for all the breakouts. They didn't think about the fact that they were now basically squatting on land that a quarter century ago had been the undisputed territory of the Chiricahua, land that the Apache had never ceded, and land that had definitely never been purchased from them. They also didn't know about the internal politics of the reservation and the vast array of pressures and personalities that had led to Geronimo breaking out yet again. And they certainly didn't think about the endemic distrust and anger that had formed following the Bascom affair and kept re-entrenching itself with incidents like the murder of Mangas Colderatus, the disposal of the Chiricahua Reservation, and every other mistreatment the Apache had suffered. Nope. All they saw was Apache raiding again and were willing to blame Crook for not being able to control his charges. So, in his new headquarters in New Mexico, Crook was left to sit and stew on the logistics of this newest campaign into Mexico. Things would be more difficult this time around. A. The Apache definitely knew he was coming because he had done it before. And B. Chiricahua unity had now fractured. There was no one camp that his troops had to capture, but four separate groups who were not coordinating and would not be so helpful as to camp all in the same spot. Hence the need for 200 more Apache scouts to be able to find everyone and to negotiate, or fight, if necessary. We'll get into the full detail of the plans for this new campaign next week, but I'll leave things now by saying that, as he studied the situation, Crook decided that he needed all his best men together for this campaign. That's right. For the second foray into Mexico, he reached out to Lieutenant Davis, Chato, Mickey Free, and Captain Emmett Crawford in Texas. It was time to get the band back together. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.